Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Um, this is episode 110. And today I'm very pleased to welcome back Professor Kevin Tipton. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm fine, thanks, Lauren. How are you? I'm fine. Um, we, 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 of course, know each other uh, pretty well. We've, I was just looking at my podcast notes, and um, we had you here on the podcast back in 2014 first. I can't believe that much time's gone by where you joined Stu Phillips on that first ever podcast on protein, which we then did oh, wow. a follow-up. Yeah, we did a follow-up to that in, um, on episode 98 in April 2017, uh, again with Stu. But that's how long, that's how much time flies. It's crazy. It really does, yeah. Um, and you've been um, uh, graciously a contributor uh, on many occasions to our uh, Diploma in Performance Nutrition program that you've come to London to attend and educate me and, and all of our students and share your knowledge, um, which is actually why um, I have you back here today is to once again draw upon your expertise. But this time it's not going to be protein specifically, although protein will come up. Um, but today's chat is about your paper that you wrote in Sports Medicine in 2015, which was Nutritional Support for Exercise-Induced Injuries, which is the focus of, of this podcast today, because I feel for several reasons it's particularly relevant to performance nutritionists, because of course this is something that they will deal with um, on various levels. But my previous podcast with um, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, was with Professor Keith Barr, um, on collagen peptides for injury prevention and, and tissue repair. So I think it's a sort of a timely follow-on to get onto the broader concept and, um, and all the different areas. So firstly, just because um, I know there's been some recent changes uh, for you, um, if you could just give us an update um, uh, as, to, as to who you are and, and what your interests are, and then we'll dive straight into it. Sure. Um as you said, I'm a professor, and uh, <clears throat> I've recently uh, left the University of Sterling, and I'll be joining the University of Durham in the Department of Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Durham, and I'm very excited about that. It's a, a relatively new program, and, and so I'm going to go down there and, and try to help build the, uh, the research uh, capacity and profile down there, so it's really an exciting opportunity for me to uh to start uh start something brand new so uh, hopefully we'll be doing some of the similar type of types of research that that i've been doing in the past and and maybe you know expanding to some other other aspects as well so it's it's really uh you've caught me at a very exciting time yeah well also um we're slowly but surely getting you down south aren't we you say coming down of course where I'm based uh, between London and Norwich, I would say you're up there somewhere. But uh, maybe uh, in the next five years, you'll be down on the south coast. A bit more sunshine. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, it was funny because for a long time, I just kept moving farther north. And so, you know, I, I was thinking maybe Inverness or, or, or you know, Tropical Tron, Inverness. Trondheim or something, you know, <laughs> Reykjavik, you know. Reykjavik, no, no, no. Well, yeah, beautiful. I've been there. It's a beautiful place. So, um, right. Okay. So let's, let's bring this back to what we're going to talk about. Perhaps you could first give us some background on why, you know, why did you actually write this paper? What was the, 
you know, what was the stimulus behind putting pen to paper on that particular topic? Because I spent most of my sporting career injured, I think, probably. <laughs> uh, well, um, because of the protein angle, uh, I started getting asked to do presentations on nutrition for injuries. And that started about, I think the first time I did one of those presentations was sort of 2006 or so. In fact, ironically, it was just before I ruptured my Achilles tendon. Um, and, and so what I became aware of as I was, you know, preparing all these presentations was that really there's very little direct research in this area that the, the most of what we talk about and, and most of where we glean the information that we then use to make recommendations comes from sort of indirect means, so to speak, because for example, you know, if we talk about uh, immobility, well, most of the studies are done either in bed rest kind of models or, or maybe, you know, there have been a, a few studies now done with, with casting, but it's usually healthy people that are casted. And maybe we could talk a little bit more about that distinction later on. But, yeah. but very rarely is anything done taking someone who's been injured and then you know, trying to, in a systematic and, and evidence-based way, try to evaluate it because, and most of the, most of the treatment that's done is done sort of, you know, from traditional kind of means and nutrition was very, very rarely even thought of as, as an influencing factor on recovering from, from injuries. Yeah. It, I mean, as I said, right at the beginning, I, you know, this is, this is something that absolutely every single sports nutritionist, performance nutritionist, sports dietitian will in some form or another um, get involved in terms of either um, supporting or, or sort of preventing, you know, the rehab, prehab. And we got into this a bit with uh, Professor Barr in the previous podcast, but I, it, it is such a significant issue because as I said in the last episode, for us as performance nutritionists, it's not so much about um, performance like the title suggests. You know, I'm a sports nutritionist. I'm a performance nutritionist because our primary role is actually to keep our athletes healthy and or if they're ill or injured is to try and return them to play. That's our primary role. Um, uh, and um, yes, of course, we're there to support training adaptations, to support performance and there's a wonderful toolbox of strategies that are becoming available some with greater and some with lesser levels of evidence behind them but this is a this is an area that I feel is worth delving into in in great deal um, because of its level of importance of course um, but if we if we just dial back uh, uh, you, you actually just mentioned yourself that in in your own um, sort of in, you know, in your own attempts to be an athlete, Kevin, you spent a lot of time injured. I, I've, I used to play a lot of rugby um, and had, and still actually have injuries that, that I'm left with as a result of, of that time in my life. But in my own practice, um, I'm, which is highly active with elite athletes and teams and so on, I'm constantly dealing with injuries. And I think having been immersed into that environment, it's actually really quite surprising how many 
athletes get injured and how significant those injuries can be in the depth and breadth of them. So perhaps since we're going to talk about nutritional support for, for injuries, particularly exercise-induced injuries, and it's a nuanced topic, so we'll, we'll, we'll get around it. Maybe you could just give us some background here about what we mean by, by injuries and um, you know, exercise-induced injuries, just, just to, you know, to set the stage here. Hi, I'm glad you asked that because, you know, the tendency is to sort of lump them all together. And, and as you're intimating here, that's definitely not the case. In my head, I kind of think about it in of two different types of injuries, really. One being the type of injury that requires immobilization or at least a drastic reduction in activity, you know, to, 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 uh, recover and heal from that injury. And then, and then other types of injuries I think of probably more along the lines of soft tissue type injuries that, that may reduce your activity some, but, but, you know, not entirely. It might just require, for example, backing off of, of the level and intensity of training, for example, and you know, you get into tears and strains and then, you know, you and Keith talked a lot about the tendons and things like that last, last time. And those, those types of injuries. So, you know, I think as we progress in this little chat, then maybe we need to make sure we talk about whether it's a inactivity immobilization injury, which, which has, you know, the extra added uh, layer of having to worry about the indirect effects of just not doing anything in that limb or overall Yeah. versus other things where you could, you know, if you've got a, you know, a sore tendon or, or a, you've pulled a muscle. Well, you're probably going to, whatever limb that is might not be doing that much, but then the rest you can still do other things and, and get around. So I think it's kind of different to think about those things and how much, how much of your activity is actually reduced. Are you just backing off on the training some, yeah. or are you just transferring it to some other activity so that you don't hurt it? And I think that's important to consider because of, energy and protein, et cetera. Of course. Yeah. And we're, we're going to get into that. And, you know, look, there, there's many different components to this and it does depend, you know, for, from which lens we're going to look at this. It's from the lens of the, the injured athlete, the, you know, the medical team, the physios, the sports scientists, strength and conditioning team. I mean, there's a lot of people potentially that could get involved in this process. And like you say, some of this might be overtraining or, there are situations when a, a player or an individual, you know, gets injured and then there's inactivity. There's a lot of different angles, but, but our angle here, of course, is, is how we can influence this uh, potentially um, from a, a nutritional perspective. Um, but we still need to have an awareness of that bigger picture. As I constantly mentioned throughout these podcasts, if you're going to try and understand the problem, you, you need to understand that beyond just you know, what, what your angle is, are you just nutrition? Um, uh, hence, uh, you know, one needs an understanding of, of uh, physiology and exercise science, and you need to have conversations with, you know, the physios, the medical team, and so on to try and get a better idea as to, as to how we can help. But we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so there are many different kinds of injuries, obviously, and there are many different types of sports and athletes. There are many different contexts here. So it's not going to be possible for us to get into every possible scenario. But obviously there are breaks, there are strains, there are impact injuries, 
Um, there, there, there are many different ways that this can happen, but there are a number of things that are going to be common to this situation. Perhaps you could sort of help summarize what, what, what are the, what are the more common components in the actual injury itself? And then, and then, you know, what, what, how, what is the body actually going to do about that? Um, at the first response. All right. So <clears throat> an important thing to consider, of course, and it's often the first consideration of physicians or, or others who are trying to treat an injury is the inflammatory response. And, and this is one of those areas that, that I think we need to kind of consider very carefully because it can be considered counterintuitive where the first, the first inclination would be to, to knock back that inflammation. You know, I know, I know 20 years ago when I was playing rugby, if we get injured, the, the docs would right away start you on anti-inflammatories and that's drugs. And then of course there are anti-inflammatory type nutrients that you can try, you know, the omega-3 fatty acids. The one thing you got to think about though, is that inflammatory response is part of the healing process. So there is a balance between, you know, knocking back that inflammation and get it, getting the recovery and, and the adaptation. You know, there's this, a lot of people don't that uh, appreciates that sometimes the you know the recovery and the adaptation c can conflict, and in, and this is one really interesting area that we don't really know enough about. But I think I would just in general say, sure, too much inflammation is definitely a bad thing, and you can get this either too long or or too intense inflammation. And Which is maybe rare. do something about it. Yeah. But I think you need to be careful about just automatically shoot from the hip, throwing a lot of anti-inflammatory, antioxidant kind of drugs or nutrients at this problem. Um, now, you know, I think I couldn't say right now on a general basis what the recommendation would be because I think you'd have to play it individually, as you say, with whatever type of injury uh, it is and how severe that injury is. So it's a, it's a balancing act that, that is tricky. And uh, to be honest, I don't think anybody really knows the precise answer to that question. I just think that if, if I was a nutritionist working with an injured athlete, that I would be, I'd be very cautious about a, an overload of, of these anti-inflammatory. There, there is one study, for example, in rats showing that you give them anti-inflammatory drugs when you injure them that they don't heal as quickly. Yeah. So, so I think it just has to be, you know, I, and I'm, but I'm not saying don't have something, but be careful. Sure. I, I know that's kind of vague. I'm sorry. No, no. Well, no, the, I, well, I think what's important there is, is we don't know so much about this situation. Right. So that's an important fact that we need to bring to the practitioner's awareness, I feel, because, you know, you think injury and you think, right, you know, inflammation is something that's discussed, talked about. There are numerous interventions um, that the other members of, of the care team, if there are a group of people involved that will have their attention on. Um, and it is all too easy for us to go, right, let's get involved on the inflammation. So I think being aware that, that, inflammation is obviously important process for for wound healing but as you say in your paper you know a drastic reduction or even attempting to abolish the inflammatory process is absolutely not in or 
you know, in, in most cases, what we should be trying to, you know, to deal with. Um, so beyond inflammation, which is a natural part of that, that process, there are, of course, various things going on when the injury occurs acutely and, and chronically. Um, and there's way too many different things really that we can get into um, in this, but it will result in um, in at least short-term immobilization, even if it's just to get the player off the pitch, um, you know, stop in the gym. Um, but it could result in much longer immobilization, which I commonly see, particularly in team settings or with, you know, runners um, and so on, where um, this can become a problem because, of course, there are many components that we'll get into today. But, in you know, the things that I typically find is they keep eating the same way um, and or they may even make a radical change to their diet that in itself may have an impact on how the body's going to fix itself. But if you, if you could, you know, tell us what's going on in this situation where there is immobilization and uh, reduced activity. What, why, why do we need to be aware of this and the potential problems that this may have for the longer term recovery of the athlete? Right. Um, so let's, let's just, let's just go to the extreme and just say a pure immobilization, say a cast on a, on a knee or leg or something. So somebody's on crutches. So, you know, the first response, of course, that most people are going to have is, as you say, they're going to start thinking about their energy intake. Now that's again, not, I, I think the information that we have available may offer something, a, a solution that's not quite as intuitive, not as most people would think. So if you, if you do, knock back your, uh, your energy intake because you're saying, okay, you know, my athletes on crutches, I'm going to have that person. They're, they're not moving around as much so that they're going to, we're going to really cut their energy intake to account for that. So that they don't gain weight, et cetera. And that's what, you know, I know the times I've been on crutches, that was my first response. A couple things to say about that. First of all, the injury itself actually increases energy expenditure. And again, depending on the severity and what type of injury, you know, is the degree to which that goes up and how long that energy expenditure lasts. But the response of the body to an injury is going to be to up the energy expenditure. It could be as little as five, 10% or, you know, in really, really bad injuries, like for example, a, a, a large burn, it's, you're more than doubling your energy expenditure. So, so that's one thing to consider. The other is that, you know, for example, if someone is on crutches, that ambulating on crutches, getting around on crutches actually takes a lot more energy than walking. And believe me, I, re I remember when I was last time I had crutches, I would, I would crutch two miles to my office and, you know, you'd be sweating up a storm doing that. Uh, so that's going to vary depending on your athlete and, and how much they, a lot of athletes, if they're on crutches, they just can't be bothered. They're not going to do anything. And others are stubborn like me and may just try to get around everywhere. So you, you've got to play it by, by ear with each individual situation. Now, the negative effect of not having enough energy, if you, if you cut that energy too much and you put someone in a hypoenergetic situation, well, you're going to compromise the healing process and the recovery. It, it, for example, 
it's very clear that muscle protein synthesis is, is uh, lowered with a, a lower energy intake, regardless of the protein intake. So, <clears throat> so you don't want to put that into that situation because the, whether it's a muscle or a bone or, or tendons, all those tissues are going to rely on having enough energy. So I think that what you want to try to do as best you can with, with your athlete is to try to assess the energy expenditure. And it's obviously going to change through the healing process, presumably, and depending on how much they ambulate and, and various other factors. But the point is, is don't just assume that it's just this drastic reduction in energy without actually assessing it and trying to balance it out. So stay yeah. balanced is the key. Now the reverse of that is also something that, you know, I found some interesting information about, which is, I know one, one thing that I thought was, Hey, you know, I'm injured. So what, I'm just going to keep eating. And you know, that way I won't worry about protein since it's going down. And if I gain a little fat, you know, I'll get it off when I start training again. This is when I was young, when I could do that. But, um, but then that also turns out that there is some evidence, and this is from bed rest studies that an excess of energy actually impairs protein census mm. too much energy in this in an inactive situation is also going to do it so you have to get this balance right and so i think it i think for practitioners out there the message would be to do you know your best to assess this energy expenditures and try to match it as much as as much as possible and not just assume one way or the other yeah the, and i want to stay on this topic just a bit because it it's such an important one uh, for several reasons that I'll elaborate on in a minute, but you made a very good point there. Um, well, you made lots of good points there, but, but, but the one is, is that we still need to be paying attention to what's going in and what's going out. Um, that there is often a concern that athletes, are, uh, you know, they're, they're inactive. So the assumption as you, you know, as you've said is that they're, 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 they're just going to get fat, so to speak. Um, but actually, Although there is a scenario that there are those situations where energy expenditure is is actually going to increase somewhat, um, not massively for most injuries, but there will be an increase. There's going to be a mismatch with how they, you know, change their their intake to prevent themselves from from potentially getting fat. That I see that quite a lot. Something that that is really starting to become of of interest in in the field is relative energy deficiency. Um, it's common where lots of athletes are trying to stay lean in the recreational sphere. Lots of people are staying lean for aesthetic purposes. So it is extremely common for, for athletes to be, um, already at a, a, a place of potential energy, um, deficiency. Um, because as I keep pointing out in sports nutrition, we've got this habit of talking about energy, um, macros you know carbohydrates and proteins but that tends to be the expense of the other things that are found in food um so when we're in an energy deficiency we're also not getting enough things like vitamins and minerals and all the other constituents that are important for you know supporting the the repair uh process the uh, supporting the immune system and so on Maybe you could just elaborate a bit on that because you do mention this in the paper, although I'm jumping the gun a bit because this is a bit further into your paper. But since we're on energy, 
you know, too much or too little. Um, maybe if we could get rid of the word energy and just talk about food for a minute. All right. I mean, it's a great point. And I, I've heard you say it before and others. And, you know, food is what, what we need to be thinking about here. And as you're, you're suggesting, if you're not eating a balanced type of diet, different foods balanced, you do have to start thinking about other nutrients that are coming along with that food. And, you know, as I said in the paper, probably the number one concept that you want to think about with an injured athlete is to avoid deficiencies. And whether that's in a deficiency of energy, as we just talked about, or protein, but also above the micronutrients. And as you say, some of those micronutrients are particularly important for, for healing, you know, vitamin K, for example. So, yeah, you, and, and the best way to, to provide all the nutrients is to eat a, a well-balanced diet and to match the, the total energy so that you can, you know, get as much micronutrients as possible with that, with that balanced diet. So, uh, you know, I can't, can't emphasize enough that the worst thing you can do is, is create a deficiency of something. Yeah. Of almost anything really. But, but yeah, there are some things maybe more than others. So that would be a major focus that I would emphasize to, to those who are thinking about this is avoid deficiencies. And so you got to think of strategies of how you want to do that. And one, as you said, good way is just to try to eat enough of a balanced type of a menu. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just that, you know, we, we all speak the sports science language and, you know, get into the phraseology of energy and protein and so on. But as a practitioner, you know, we, we do need to be thinking in terms of a food first approach in our translational process here. So I'm always trying to wave that flag as much as I, as I can. So, right, let's get into so, so some stuff that um, I think uh, you're, you're particularly well known for in terms of the protein thing. I mean, the, 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 reason, the reason why this, this will have, you know, some interest here and, and will correlate maybe with some of the other podcasts that we've done um, is, is because protein is obviously going to play a, a major role in terms of, um, you know, the risk of affecting the, the, the engine, if you like, of the athlete, the muscles. And um, you, you, early on in your paper, you, you go into this in a fair bit of detail where you're talking about um, muscle protein balance um, and um, muscle protein synthesis. And since we've been talking about energy balance and too much and too little, I quite like the, the parity there in this conversation where, you know, we, we also have this, this situation of, of it's not just muscle atrophy or, um, you know, trying to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. There's a, a, a fairly complex process um, that influences muscle protein balance, which is of key relevance here. Maybe you could just help get into that a bit. You know, what, what, what is important here and what are we trying to influence assuming the athlete um, is you know, well, maybe we've got the various scenarios, haven't we, of being immobile or at least undergoing some form of physical therapy. Um, but what, what's actually going on under the hood here, under the bonnet? Right. Um, yeah, for sure. If you immobilize a limb or, or even just reduce activity, and I'll, let me, I'll expand on that in a second. So some studies were done, and of course, Stu Phillips did some of the first studies with casting and, and showed very clearly that if you if – you, and we did bed rest studies even 20 years ago back in, in Texas when I worked there um, in the 
in relation to microgravity, um, a lot of a lot of the funding came from NASA. But the concept is the same: when you unload a muscle, you you're going to muscle protein synthesis is going to be reduced. Now, <clears throat> there's a bit of a controversy as to how, as you say, balance is the key. The as you know, the this the balance between the rate of protein synthesis and protein breakdown is going to determine whether or not you gain or lose muscle mass, and in particular, the myofibrillar protein. So the actin, the myosin, the structural proteins is, is, are, are what give, gives mass to the muscle. Now, those, the, the synthesis of those proteins goes down. Now, depending on who you listen to is whether or not protein breakdown is a major player in that. So some people argue that protein breakdown goes up during this immobility. The vast majority of any evidence for that is in rodents. In humans, it hasn't been shown. And, and I wrote another paper in sports medicine and published last year uh, with uh, Lee Hamilton and Ian Gallagher. And we, we talked about protein breakdown and, and, and its influence on the changes in muscle mass with nutrition and exercise. Now, what we don't know, so, so most of the studies that have been done on this are done, the, the earliest is about five days into the immobility. And I think Luke, Luke Fallone and those guys did that study. And again, no real obvious signs that protein breakdown had gone up at that point. But some, some people will argue that maybe in the first day or two, so in the immediate after effect of an injury or immobility, as soon as you put that cast on, then maybe protein breakdown goes up in a transient manner and we're just missing it with our, with our measurements. So that's a possibility that it could contribute, but it's transient. Whereas we know that at least for two weeks and there have even been some longer bed rest studies, you know, in the, in the, even up to like 60 days that protein census has decreased. So in the long term, it's protein census that we want to focus on. Again, protein breakdown, you could think of this as we were talking about with the oxidative stress or the uh, inflammation in that a certain amount of an increase in protein breakdown may be important in an injury situation because you got to break down those damaged and injured uh, molecules and, and, you know, re restore and, and, you know, rehab all, all that tissue. So again, I think that the nutritional focus should be on preventing that decrease in protein breakdown as much as, uh, sorry, sorry, protein synthesis. We, we want, it's, it's going to, it's going to go down and we want to try to try to maintain that as much as possible. And that a nutritional focus on protein breakdown, I think is a mistake. Okay. That's, that's, so that's a powerful statement because that actually is something that a lot of people are trying to deal with, aren't they? Um, so let's just double back on that because I, I, I think it would be easy for us to slip by that. If you could just repeat what you've just said and then, and then just, just maybe elaborate just a little bit more on, on that particular okay. issue because it is important. For, from a nutritional standpoint, uh, supporting an injured, and in this case we're talking an immobile mm. limb of an athlete or an exercise or whatever, I think that the nutritional focus should be on maintaining protein synthesis and not worrying about 
some sort of nutritional focus on decreasing protein breakdown. So every study we, that, that's done, except for sort of some really pathological situations, protein synthesis and protein breakdown change in the same direction. So two weeks after immobility, it, when we measured protein synthesis and protein breakdown, and we did this back in Texas, Arnie Ferrando did these studies first, you see that, yes, two weeks after immobilization. And these are, as I say, bed rest studies in healthy people. And again, I think we probably want to circle back to that difference between healthy and injured, but it immobilized people in bed, protein synthesis drops dramatically, but so does protein breakdown. Synthesis drops more than breakdown. So you get a net, you know, a negative balance and that's, and so there's, there's where you're losing the muscle. As I said, there is, you know, some suggestion that maybe in the first day or two, protein breakdown might have a, might go up, but it's not, uh, in humans anyway, it's not um, clear. And, oh, let me just add that some of the evidence for protein breakdown is based on molecular markers and the correlation with the molecular markers is not always very solid with the actual rate of protein breakdown. So in other words, you can get more messenger RNA of some of these atropins and things like that, and you get more mRNA, but you don't see it's not correlated with an increase in protein breakdown. So the, the physiological activity doesn't track with the molecular changes, you know, in a very reliable way, I should say. And, and I wrote something on, on that for, uh, I've written it for like a blog and things like that for those kind of ideas. But the point is, I think that we need to focus on protein census from a nutritional standpoint yeah. and not, not focus on protein breakdown. Yes. Now, of course, this gets a little bit more complicated if we maybe be less prone to generalize and we, you know, we, we maybe are more specific to the type of injury. And, and where I'm going with this is, um, there might be a difference potentially you tell me uh between you know whether there's an upper body injury as opposed to a lower body injury um where an individual is immobile in terms of they're not using their their arm their shoulder that sort of thing but they are still on their legs they might be able to do say one leg deadlifts that sort of thing to get some whole body exercise as opposed to you know some sort of unilateral thing like like, you know, how, how much will that influence this or is it not that relevant to us as nutritionists to be worrying about, you know, uh, the, the differences in where these injuries, these are? Well, no, I, no, I, I think you're absolutely right that you do need to consider that. And, mm. you know, when we first started this conversation, we talked about, you know, the different types of injuries and, and I think the approach has to be different and, and that, that's where the challenge comes in for the nutritionist, right? Mm. And, but so there are a couple of things that are interesting about your question. So I would absolutely say that if, if, again, if I were advising an athlete that was injured, I would try to get that athlete to do every type of exercise they can that doesn't impair the healing process in whatever uh, limb or, or area that's injured. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is just overall, if, if, if all you're doing is lying around, 
you're going to end up with some metabolically compromised athletes, you know, so even healthy athletes, if you lie around enough and don't do anything, you're going to end up, your insulin sensitivity is going to start dropping. You're going to lose muscle in, in, I mean, you don't have to put a limb in a cast before you start losing the muscle, even just not doing much. Uh, you know, Lee Breen published a study from when he was at Stu's lab um, and Lee's now at the university of Birmingham, but uh, he, he showed that, you know, you, you, just drop step counts by 75% and you lose muscle and protein census goes down. And, and in these, these were older people in this particular study, but uh, you know, even their insulin sensitivity went, went down quite a bit. So you're putting yourself into a, an, a compromised situation if you don't do anything. So any, like you say, if you've got an arm injury and you can get on a, on a, you know, recumbent bike or something and, and ride, definitely do that. Now there's another interesting concept that I think needs to be explored more, but there's some tantalizing kind of data suggesting that if you're exercising one limb, that the contralateral limb gets some benefits. So if my right leg is injured and I'd lift with my left, there is some suggestion that maybe that left, that, that right leg does benefit from that. And it, the idea is that it's a, uh, it's from the nerve uh, impulses, the neuromuscular impulses that are, coming down the central and then some of it sort of bleeds over into the other, the nerves. And so you do get some stimulation and we do know for example, that if you have an immobilized limb, that if you electrically stimulate that limb, then it will respond and protein census is increased. And Marlou Dirks did some nice studies on that in Luke's lab. So, so, you know, you extend that to say getting that electrical stimulation sort of bleeding over a little bit from the contralateral limb and, and, and so maybe you're getting a little bit of benefit and maybe you could slow down the, the loss of, of muscle and, and get a little bit of stimulation and benefit there. But uh, I, I think that needs to be explored better. And then, and then, you know, if that's the case, then you, if you're supporting that with the appropriate nutrition, as we said before, ample energy, but also of course, protein intake, um, then, then that's an important, important factor. So yes, you know, it's not, nutrition per se, but I do mention it in the paper that the, the physical activity that you do to, you know, to support an injury is also important and not just the direct activity of like when that cast comes off and you got to rebuild your, your muscle or, or your ability to do the sport. It's even while you're in the cast or while you're immobilized, you can do other things and whatever it is that you can do, you should do. Uh, if if that's kind of an oversimple way to say yeah it. no no i i i think that you know typically sports nutritionists particularly in team settings there's gonna be you know we're gonna have to collaborate with other interventions and that's why i'm talking about this is to raise uh, awareness of of the of these things um because we absolutely can play a role but we do need to be aware of what's going on when all these other things are all these other interventions are happening to get this athlete back on the road, back on the pitch, back on the ring, back in the ring. Um, right. So look, we're talking about protein. So let's just dive a bit more into, into protein. Um, so from a dietary perspective, then I, I know we've sort of mentioned this, but I mean, what, why is protein intake and why is the right amount and the right type of protein and and you can obviously explore what i mean by amount and types um but 
you know, what, what, why is dietary protein going to be an important aspect in this phase? Well, you know, as, as we've talked about in other podcasts, protein is uh, the, what stimulates muscle protein census. And so if you do uh, increase the amount of protein in the diet on, on a relative basis, then, then you will uh, be able to help protect that, that muscle to some extent. Now, the muscle does become refractory to the protein when it's immobilized. So, you know, you, you get that anabolic resistance as we, we, you know, the buzzword we like to throw around. So the muscle doesn't respond to the amino acids from the ingested protein as robustly as it is in a healthy limb or especially an active limb, but it still is, you still need to do it. And in fact, that's the, the other argument is, well, you need more to get the same response. So, so yes, you should probably up your protein intake. And um, I've written this and Stu's written this, and it seems to be that somewhere in the between two and 2.5 uh, grams protein per kilogram per day is probably about what you want. Now, you know, a lot of people don't like it when I give that broad of a range, but I think you need to because you have to, to maintain that depending on, on uh, the total energy. You know, if, if you're not eating very much, then getting two and a half grams per kilo of protein is going to be a lot not just on an absolute basis, but also because then you're going to have to compromise some other foods. And we, as you mentioned earlier, then you become, you know, in danger of, of missing out on some other nutrients if you're not careful. So again, it's a whole big balancing act that you got to think about all these different factors. So yeah, up your protein. If you want to think about it on a percentage basis, I'd put it up in the 35% or so at least. Uh, not, you probably don't want to go a whole lot higher than that. I wouldn't think, but but, you know, we did a study a few years ago, and it wasn't injuries, but it was low-calorie intake in these athletes. And what we saw very clearly was that, you know, we could protect the muscle mass in this low-energy intake situation if we up the, the protein intake to 35%. And other people have shown that as well. So, it, you know, it's a pretty, pretty solid finding. But I think it applies also to, to injuries and maybe even more because of that anabolic resistance that you get from, from the lack of activity of, of these muscles. And the same would go for tendons and bone as well. Just, just quickly, because I'm thinking about this is, you know, we, we're always thinking about protein and muscle. Um, previous conversations with Professor Craig Sale, we've definitely gone into protein and bone which, you know, isn't something people would think about as being important, but clearly it is. But also when we're, when we're looking at protein intake and just why it is important to have uh, sufficient amounts and its impact on, on wound healing and, and the inflammatory process. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's key, isn't it? And, and that's why we're talking about protein. It's not always about, you know, we use muscle protein synthesis, protein, sorry, muscle balance and so on. But at its corest level, it directly impacts tissue, you know, sorry, wound healing and, and, uh, and inflammation, doesn't it? Uh, it's uh, for sure. A deficiency of protein will impair wound healing. That's, that's been a very common, uh, you know, surgeons have known that for, for decades. Um, so you definitely want to have enough, as you said, sufficient protein. Yeah. 
Um, I'm arguing that probably you want to have a little bit more and because of the, the muscle aspects of it. So loss of muscle. So that's even if, even if you have a bone injury and you put your leg in a cast, you're going to lose muscle. So even though the muscle per se is healthy. Yeah. So, you know, so you want to avoid that. So that's, those are two slightly different questions. Now, uh, we know that bone, you know, people think a bone is this hard kind of calcium and minerals. Well, that's laid on top of a, a matrix of collagen, you know, a protein. And you and Keith talked about collagen in the, ter- in the sense of tendons and ligaments last time, but bone is also there. And bone, bone collagen does respond to protein intake. Um, uh, Mike Rennie showed that in, in a couple studies. Uh, the, the late, great Mike. Um, so, <clears throat> and then you and Keith talked about this, you know, the, the concept of, of the tendon and bone collagen and then eating the, the gelatin and the other types of, now I think Keith made a good point uh, when he said, we don't know for sure that, you know, the collagen is the only protein that's going to do this. And I think some of these other studies have, have suggested that other proteins definitely do. And then the question is, do you really need all that extra proline, et cetera? And maybe you do. I, I think we still need to, you know, as Keith said, it's only been one or two studies, so we still need to find out. So, so anyway, I mean, I think yeah. you're right that, that you need to have this protein not just for the muscle, but also for wound healing and bone and tendon are both going to respond to that. Well, ten, it's not clear whether tendon collagen does respond to, to protein as, unless, of course, as I think Keith said it the other day, because I, I, I do listen to your podcast, so I, I heard it. Yes, um, thanks. <laughs> <good for> <laughs> uh, and so uh, – you know, you need that, you need the stimulation from the exercise. Remember, he emphasized that, as I recall. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that's absolutely true. And so, of course, if it's an injured tendon, well, you're taking the stress off it by not exercising it. But it will, from a nutritional standpoint, it's going to respond better when, it, when it's exercising. So, um, um, Since we're using the word optimizing here, optimizing protein intake, which you've thoroughly answered there, um, but what, what about type? So how relevant is the type of protein and within protein there are constituents that, that, uh, you know, the listeners are aware of, but what is the relevance of those constituents to the situation? So, yeah, it's a good question. Of course, the main focus is on leucine, you know, and leucine as, as I'm sure most of your listeners know is, is an important amino acid from a building block standpoint. So you're not, your leucine is being incorporated into the peptide chain that becomes a protein, but it's also a stimulatory amino acid. It, it triggers the molecular pathways that, you know, you've had some great guests that have talked a lot about that sort of thing in detail. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's probably the main focus is to, is to, the idea is to, have the proteins which provide the optimal amount of leucine. Now, what is that? We don't really know. Uh, a lot of people uh, will throw numbers around. Uh, those numbers are extrapolated, I think. Um, we, we do, I, I will extend this by saying, first, the main thing is you need to provide all the essential amino acids. And so for those two reasons, it's thought that probably animal proteins and in particular whey protein has been shown in, in studies in comparison with a couple of other proteins, but there's been 
there's been no real comparison of all the different types of proteins. So it's a tough, you know, we tend to sort of default by saying, when we say high quality protein means a protein with ample leucine. Now, that being said, I recently uh, put together a bunch of studies and I was doing this because I was going to, I'm writing a grant, but it's not always clear that you give the most leucine and that gives you the best response. So there's either a ceiling and or other factors which come into play. And I'd be speculating about what other factors. So I probably, I don't, I don't think we want to spend the time on there, but some of them could be nutritional. But the fact is that it seems like that something else may come into play. So purely focusing on leucine may not be the, the answer. For example, you know, Nick Bird showed with his egg whites and versus full eggs study published what last year, year before and showed that, you know, the response was better with the, with the, whole eggs. So the yolk included. So that meant the difference was the fat or something in the yolk that wasn't because the leucine was the same. Right. And we showed this with, with full fat versus skim milk, but gosh, long time ago, <laughs> you know, it's 2006. I think we published that paper and we made the suggestion that the only difference is, is the, is the uh, fat and so it's not just the amount of leucine alone that makes the, the difference. So there are these other factors come into play. Again, I would argue that that supports your earlier contention that we need to think about food. Yeah, exactly. That, that supplements really aren't the answer. We do all our protein synthesis studies, not all, because more and more are trying to do foods now. But we've traditionally done these studies with just isolated supplements, not because we're studying the supplement per se, it's because we can isolate, you know, the question. We can yeah. ask a, a, a solid question without interference. But often that's interpreted as saying that that supplement is the magic one. For example, in all of Luke's studies with the pre-sleep protein, those were all done with, with casein. And if you talk to Yorn and Luke about it, they'll tell you that the reason it's done with casein is because that's what they had. You know, when they, when they did their glowing cow thing where they feed the, you know, the labels to the cow and then they get the milk. Yeah. You know, only about 20% of that protein is whey. So they ran out of that and they had casein. Yeah. So the, so everybody interprets it saying you need to have casein before bed. Well, no, nobody's done the comparison. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think that's when you get, when you say what type of protein, I think we can say that, yes, if you, like dairy and you can tolerate dairy. Well, that's a perfectly good one. You know, eggs seem to be fine, but mostly I would focus on, on foods. And if you're, and probably animal proteins, although again, I think they're starting to be more of a, more support for some of these plant proteins as being effective as well. You just might need a little bit more. Sure. So, you know, I, I, so for a vegan, for example, it's not, you know, you're, you're not going to waste away if you're injured but you do have to think a little bit more about it. Yeah. 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 So look, I think I'm just mindful of time on this because we, I think we could go on for hours on this. So, <laughs> Definitely. so look, we've, we, you know, look, we've, we've discussed the, the problem, which is, you know, exercise induced injury in some detail. We've, we've at least considered the fact that you do have to contextualize the type of injury and, you know, active, inactive and so on. We've made it clear that 
avoiding uh, severe energy restriction is incredibly important, but also on the flip side, not over consuming as well. There are some potential problems there. We've made it very clear that you need to have a well-balanced diet, food first approach. You've made it very clear that some of these strategies are available, um, are presented like casein, as you've just discussed, because that's what the research was done. But, you know, a protein-rich food or a casein-rich food um, is going to do the trick as well. Um, but there are a few other things that are coming out in the literature, um, but of course, a much higher, um, you know, much higher or much further away from our list of priorities, which we've just discussed, but are still worthy of some attention as potential evidence-based strategies in the toolbox. And um, just just for the sake of time, I'll, I'll point out what they are and then you can discuss them. So uh, creatine in particular, uh, omega-3s, the whole collagen thing I discussed with Keith in the previous podcast, as you said, but creatine and omega-3. So what, what's, what's of interest in, in that? Um, um, and why, why should we consider that in our toolbox and when, when perhaps to use them? <coughs> well, I, again, it goes back to what type of injury. And so I'm going to, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a turn here and, and kind of change the focus a little bit, but it's worth mentioning. And that's with head injuries. Obviously head injuries have been getting a lot more attention recently in, in a lot of different sports, in particular the sport that you and I love rugby, uh, but American football and, and even in, in soccer and, and proper football. Um, so there, there's definitely uh, preclinical evidence for both creatine and omega-3s and other compounds uh, supporting recovery from traumatic brain injury or concussion in rat studies. You know, so if the, you know, obviously it's very difficult to, to do sort of systematic studies in humans because you can't sort of go around knocking people on the head and seeing whether omega-3s help, right? So in the rat studies, what they do, one of the major models that they use is they literally knock these rats on the head. They have different devices to do this. And one of the tests that they do is they toss them in a pool of water that has an island in the middle, and they see how, how fast they swim to this island. And so before and after the head injury, obviously they, swim, they get back there more slowly after the head injury. And then if you give them some of these compounds, curcumin's another one, there are several of these studies showing that, that they can return to the island more quickly. So, uh, you know, you're, it's dubious as to whether that's ethical in rats, but certainly you can't do it in humans. So, so then a lot of people have gotten a lot of excitement. The trouble is, is as, as I said, is how do you measure this? Well, there had been one study in American footballers, and they actually tried a, a relatively clever model. His name, uh, uh, Oliver is his last name. I think Kim or John, I think maybe it is. Or am I thinking of the comedian from? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find anyway, out. Oliver is, his, is, and he did a study where he tracked American footballers throughout a season, and he was measuring a particular compound called neurofilament light. And that's supposedly a marker of, of brain trauma. And this is sort of not anybody with a major uh, concussion that was actually diagnosed as a concussion. These are just sort of the sub 
subconcussive impacts that they get during training, you know, with the different blocking and tackling drills, et cetera. And that this neurofilament light, which has the unfortunate acronym of NFL, you know, to add confusion to the whole thing when you're talking about American football. So this neurofilament light would go up throughout the season, but when he was given players DHA, you know, one of the omega-3 fatty acids that it, it tempered that rise. Now, the interesting thing about it was he gave three doses of the DHA and it was only the lower dose that actually had a positive effect. The other two doses that neurofilament light went up. So first you've got to, you've got to agree that neurofilament light is a valid indicator of, of head trauma. And that's usually mostly accepted, but not universally. And then you also, the point is too much of a good thing maybe isn't so good. You know, you got to get the dose right. So just throwing some of these compounds or nutrients at problems is, can be problematic if you do too much. It's just like with the energy we talked about earlier. So yes, there is some, you know, and I think it's a field we, uh, I was involved in a study or in a grant proposal last year that we got funded. Tom DiVirgilio will is doing the study in, in retired foot, uh, rugby players that have had head injuries. And so we're going to give them omega threes to see if we can. And these are guys who haven't played in, you know, five, 10 years or whatever, at least. And he's just getting that study started, but there are some ways that some of these compounds might be able to be used to help uh, those who've suffered from, from head injuries, but we don't really know very much about it. And again, the, the, the lesson I would learn from, from the Oliver studies is that, you got to be careful because if you give too much, it's actually going to make things worse. Right. So again, you got to figure out what this balance is. And so, you know, I would, I would urge caution before people start going crazy with all these different things based on rat studies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe. Is that what you were And creatine is what is also shown in some rat studies to help with head injuries as well. Yeah. Yeah. But also, um, I was also thinking, you know, in other conversations about, protein quality for example we might use we, we might say you know things like leucine helps to rescue you know say a vegan protein for example a plant-based protein and i'm thinking also one perspective on this is that the use of omega-3s and creatine as well but you know could be there to rescue um, those components that would otherwise be deficient from that perspective you know we've already talked about the importance of having a well-balanced diet whatever that means you know that's another topic but uh um you know i guess what you're saying is is there's potentially some value there but we don't really know you know um, and another one you want to mention is vitamin d right so for 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 immune function and wound healing there's you know again it's not without controversy but fairly good evidence about vitamin D again, at least being sufficient. So, you know, I think, uh, somebody like, you know, Neil Walsh could probably do a whole podcast for you on that, you know, vitamin D and immune function alone. Um, so again, these are things that we, we have some information from clinical kind of models. We have some information from, you know, healthy people and from rats but in injured athletes, we don't really know that much about most of this stuff directly. And, and let me come back to, the, you know, I've hinted at this a couple of times. 
when we do these studies in these models of healthy individuals with immobilized limb or lying in bed and inactive, and we use that to represent or we, we try to extrapolate that to injured athletes, well, we don't know what that interaction of that injury and that immobilization, how that complicates the situation. So, you know, we have to do the best we can with the information we have. And again, ethically doing these studies is very difficult because, you, you know, I can't go around breaking people's legs and, and studying them, right? So we have to either take people who get injured and then you're talking years to do a study because injury rates may or may not be high and et cetera. So there are all these complications and, and we have to consider that when we're trying to make decisions about, about what to recommend yeah. to these people. And I think if, if, if I haven't beaten this dead horse enough, then the nutritionist needs to consider the individual situation and I would urge at least some caution before starting to throw everything under the sun yeah. at, at, at an injured athlete to see if we can help. You know, I think because yeah. there are going to be interactions, we don't know how things work. You get too much of some things and it's not, it's worse than not enough or whatever. So I think all those, I know that's an unsatisfactory answer sometimes to people. But no, it's important, isn't it? I, I, it is. It's important. I think if we, if we go back to the sort of ask a Eukendroop pyramid of priorities, you know, the, the, the absolute vast majority of that entire pyramid is going to be getting day-to-day basics, right? You know, with nutrition quality, enough quantity, you know, we've talked about that um, in great detail now and everything else is sort of, you know, at the tip of the uh, the pyramid or the uh, the sprinkling on the cake, isn't it? That, it oh, yeah. but that doesn't happen. It's so common for, you know, sports nutrition. Um, uh, uh, you know, time spent on this topic is very much about what supplements can help support this process. When clearly, it's a very minor, if at all, concept. Um, so, look, um, we're. we're, we're we've been blabbing on here for quite some time or I've been blabbing. You've been talking good stuff and good sense as always. Um, I think uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. I think we've summarized everything anyway uh, in this conversation at the end. Um, I'm going to make sure that we have your paper that we've been talking about in the, uh, in the podcast notes. Um, it's, it's widely available. So um, there's no restrictions to read that. Um, as well as uh, I've actually created an infographic based on your paper in the past. So I'll, I'll add that as well to help sort of visually summarize some components here. Um, but if folks want to uh, follow you on, uh, on social media, um, um, what is your, your, uh, your Twitter handle? Twitter handle now is at Prof Tipper. At Prof Tipper. There you go. Well, that'll be in my... I'll tweet that in my um, uh, when that goes out. And of course, we'll link to your research gate and so on. And um, I'd just like to say thank you very much, Kevin, for sharing with us uh, your thoughts and ideas where we've been able to unpack this topic and add a little bit of you know, critical thinking and, and have an evidence-based conversation about this very important topic that everyone involved with the nutritional care of, of athletes should be, should be aware of. Um, so thank you very much, Kevin. All right, my pleasure. It's uh, always, always, uh, always fun to natter on about this stuff. 
Yeah, well, we'll have you back. There's lots of other things we're going to natter on. Uh, and as you start to develop and unravel more of your existing and new research uh, now at Durham and so on, we'll, 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 we'll have you back for sure. So that's the end of this podcast, folks, episode 110. Um, you can find out all our previous podcasts at uh, guruperformance.com as well as all our other uh, projects that we do, including our educational programs in performance nutrition that Kevin has uh, contributed uh, widely to. Um, so um, I'll bring it to a, an end, of course. My name is Laura Bannock, and look forward to bringing another episode back to you very soon.